Father, we, we do rejoice at the wonders of salvation. Um, we know you find our greatest joy when we are most in tune with those realities in our heart, when we are most captured with the glory of Christ. It is those moments that we have the greatest joy, the greatest courage, the greatest confidence, the greatest clarity in relation to ourselves in this world. And so we pray that you would move us ever more and more to see that glory, to live in it obediently, faithfully, trustingly. And we know that you direct us to that end through your word, through your word that was given to us to glorify Christ, to renew our minds, to renew our affections, to direct our will, to give us wisdom, to give us hope, to give us encouragement, to give us rebuke, to give us correction, and in every way to point us in righteousness. And so we pray that even as we come to the end of this epistle of 1 Peter, that your word would have that sanctifying effect in our hearts. And it's for that we pray in the name of Jesus. Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And as I mentioned, we are coming to the end of this epistle. Uh, we find ourselves in verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14, the closing remarks of the Apostle Peter to this church, this precious group of saints. And as we come to the end of this letter, this book from the Bible known to us as 1 Peter, we are reminded that we are doing just that. We are reading a letter. We are reading a letter of the Apostle, in this case Peter, I think that's what Paul wrote, the Apostle Peter to a church of believers, real, live, human, struggling Christians. And he's writing to them to encourage them. And, and this has always been a way, it's nothing new to Scripture in one sense, that we have encouraged one another in communicated words of strength and words of help to other people is by writing letters. There's a, a rich history in, in all of humanity of written letters. You could go out and through written letters of great leaders of nations, written letters that are uh, precious encouragements during times of war when soldiers write home to their wives, to their families. Sometimes that's the last thing they have is this letter that was written to them of a loved one who was lost in a faraway land, and it becomes to them precious. It becomes to them a remembrance uh, of that dear and beloved person. So letters have always played an important role in just the history of humanity. That actually, this is a footnote here, is one of the things we lose in our common age of Twitter and tweeting and uh, texting and emails and so on and so forth, is that art of writing letters, of writing letters to one another. But letters have played an important role in the history of humanity. They played an important role in the history of the church. And so some of the most encouraging reminders, or well, in one sense, revealers of what life was like in, in the history of the church and the ways that great leaders encouraged one another, we have because of letters. Uh, this is one of multi-volumes of a work of just one of those such leaders, uh, John Calvin, with his tracts and letters. The little tracts that he wrote on different various issues, the theological issues, doctoral issues, and so forth. But also, it's a collection of all of the letters that he wrote to various people. I won't read the whole thing, but I just want to give you a sampling of this, uh, of kind of his letters and how he encouraged others. Of course, there was during this time, 
be out of school in Geneva, and it wasn't uncommon for many to come because of the persecution that was going on in the face of the Reformation and this battle always between uh, Protestant uh, believers and the Catholic Church and how it came to an end and, and persecution that came as a result in, in that. Uh, so one such group was suffering in Paris. As a matter of fact, French Calvinists or French Reformers were known as Huguenots or writing, and they suffered much, these Huguenots, and he's writing to uh, some of these believers, and let me just give you an example of this, and I, and I don't read the whole thing, but I'll just read it from here. This was written on January 28, 1565. He says, Dear Sir Jim Eris and brethren, Jim Eris is a Huguenot, as I make no doubt that Satan is what he is called. In like manner, if I were more able for the task, I should work on my part to lay myself out to defend you but on your own part, without waiting to be stirred up by others, you should be diligent to take up arms and hold yourselves in readiness long before evening. To that end, whensoever it shall please God to make trial of your faith, you have wherewithal to answer it and not be taken by surprise. For this purpose, you know what means you have of continual exercise. For there is no one who after self-examination does not feel more and more convinced of his innocence, and such is the way of the enemy that well might the most valiant tremble if they were not thoroughly fortified. But it is well for us that the remedy is certain, and what is more, that we have not far to go to search for it. So then, take refuge in him who is our stronghold, and whatever fallout, beware of dispersion, which can only bring ruin upon us. He goes on to encourage them, and he has various other words, and he ends with this, Whereupon, my dear and honored brethren, Having commended myself to your care and my patience and exercise to have you in this business, to give you increase in all joy, to strengthen you with a constancy not to be overcome, and direct you unto the end according to my will, my brethren, my beloved. So many of brothers like that have labored at this end of the church as leaders and uh, served under their charge, brethren encouraging one another in times of trial and suffering and Christian fellowship and such. Faith and love and 
doctrine of inspiration. I purposely, and you'll, you'll get to this later, I'm not coming up with some other title, but saying, no, these are rich doctrinal truths. And doctrinal truths are not the cold, hard, uh, sort of just, well, just that, cold, hard, distant kind of truths. When we think of the word doctrine, we should think of those precious truths that warm our hearts, that give us encouragement, that draw us into worship. So that being said, we want to look first at the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of the church, all of which are richly flavoring Peter's words here in verses 12 through 16. So let me read the passage, and then we'll look at the first point together. Having just in verse 11 acknowledged that God is the sovereign one who has dominion over all things, he then gives these words. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Notice first the beautiful picture that this is of the doctrine of inspiration. And he gives us here an insight into the reality of the inspiration of Scripture, which is a marvelous, marvelous setting. And I note first under this then the humanity and the divinity of inspiration. The human and the divine elements of inspiration. Again, he says in verse 12, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, For so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And again, as noted with these words, he brings his epistle to a close and gives us a very intimate insight into the way that God has communicated his word to us in the way that God has given to us Scripture, Scripture, and that then relates to the doctrine of inspiration. It's a marvelous and a wonderful portrait of the intimate relationship of God's absolute sovereignty over man, and yet at the same time, under that sovereignty, man's ability to reflect accurately and clearly a true communication from God to be able to reflect accurately and authoritatively and sufficiently God's own will to speak to man. It's really a marvelous, marvelous picture, really, of man being made in the image of God. No other part of God's creation could communicate in this way and be the vehicles and the instruments of God's word and of the work 
of inspiration could reflect such real communion with God and with men. And so here is a man made in the image of God under the divine influence of the Spirit who's enabled to pen the very words of God, words that are at the same time fully Peter's words and are fully God's words. And that is the marvel of Scripture. Again, when we read such a simple verse in verse 12, we're reminded that this is simply the words of personal address. It's a letter from one person to another, an elder to a beloved group of Christians who share his fellowship in Christ. In every way, it is very human. You don't get any more human than this. It reflects very human circumstances. It reflects a human context. It reflects a human personality. And yet, it is included in the eternal word of God. And this is something that is indicated to us in so many ways beyond just the actual, the fact of the letter itself. But listen to this. One of the marvelous truths of inspiration and where we get this picture together of the sovereignty of God and then this personality, this reality of this this freedom of humanity under that sovereignty is this, that when God wrote Scripture through men or when men wrote Scripture under the influence of God, it in no way bypassed who they were as human beings. In other words, who Peter was, who Paul was, who the writer of Hebrews was, who every writer of Scripture was, and particularly I'm focusing here on the New Testament, was from his very birth shaped by God in every one of his experiences under his sovereign and providential hand to be exactly and precisely the instrument that he wanted to communicate his word. It's a glorious picture of the sovereignty of God. Listen to how Paul says this. I'm just going to read to you a couple of verses. In Galatians chapter 1, he says this, Verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul, an unbelieving, would soon become Jewish Pharisee and persecutor of the church, was during every experience of his life said he is set apart from God to be an apostle to the church. That means from God's intentions and God's purposes in his life, from birth all the way to his conversion, all the way to the end of his life, God was preparing him to have a specific ministry, which, as it relates to Scripture, would include writing much of the New Testament. He was a man prepared by God even from the womb, even before he came to a true knowledge of him. We see an example of this as well. Listen, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, being called to the prophetic ministry by God, says this in chapter 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you and have appointed you a prophet to the nations. In reality, this is true of all God's messengers, beginning with Moses, who wrote the first books of the Bible, to every uh, subsequent book, is these are men who were prepared by God 
to be exactly who God wanted them to be, to communicate to us exactly the message that God wanted to communicate to us. I think that's one of the most marvelous and amazing parts of inspiration, uh, personally, is it so encaptures the fullness of God's providence over the details of life. I'm captured that way too, maybe you are, with the genealogies in Scripture. We have a list of names, which a lot of you, don't don't raise your hand, probably skip over if you do your reading through the Bible plan. You go, uh, yeah, okay, here's the good part. But in fact, by you don't have to meditate on every name. Uh, one thing that should strike you every time you come to these genealogies is of the marvelous faithfulness and sovereignty of God. Why are those genealogies there? They're not there when... Our sleeping pill isn't working, and so we open up the Bible. They're there because they are a testimony to God's sovereign faithfulness to his promise. God made a promise at the fall that through the woman, a seed would come. Every one of those genealogies is a promise of saying God is keeping his promise. God is keeping his promise. God is keeping his promise. And behind every name is an individual life that God was working in order to preserve his word and his truth to bring about his purposes. And so it is with scripture. That is to say, as Peter writes these closing words that are included for us in God's eternal and holy word, Peter was prepared to do so in every detail of his life by God's providence. That means that each writer, their personality, their cultural context, their educational background, their family situation, their parents, their religious upbringing, the details of their salvation experience, their intellectual capacities, even where and when they were born in the history of the world, and every lived experience in between that birth and death was providentially superintended by God to shape and mold them to be exactly what God wanted them to be, to write precisely what God wanted them to write when he would use them as an in- human instrument of his word. That's the human aspect of Scripture. That's the human aspect of Scripture. So when we say, who wrote Scripture, God or man, what's the answer? Go ahead, Todd. Yes is the answer. Yes. Who wrote Scripture, God or man? Yes. God wrote Scripture and man wrote Scripture. When you read through all of the various authors, their personality comes out. The way they write, their experiences, the very purposes of their writing all come out through uh, the letters that are recorded for us in Scripture. This is absolutely, absolutely marvelous. Let me give you just a few examples of that sort of interrelatedness between Scripture being the Word of God and Scripture being the Word of man and the way that the Bible itself talks about some of these things. There's so many of these examples. I'm going to give you uh, just a few. Uh, in Exodus chapter 9, uh, verse 16, you don't have to turn there. We'll just keep skipping on a bit. But in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, we have here in the accounting of God's deliverance of his people, verse 16, it says uh, in a word that uh, God is giving Uh, Through Moses, it says, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power. So this is a word to Pharaoh that Moses is delivering to Pharaoh. Indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. And yet then we come to Romans 9, 17, which is reflecting this event. And we have these words. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. So who said that to Pharaoh? Moses? Yes. Who was speaking in the first person? God? So did God say it? Did Moses say it? Moses said it. God said it. Here, Paul says, Scripture said it. In other words, they're all of a piece. Let me give you just a few other examples. In Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, verse 4, we read these words. Matthew 16, 4 says, For God said, speaking here of the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. And yet, in Mark chapter 7, verse 10, we read these words. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. And so on and so on. The point here is, is that it is all of a piece. When we read Scripture, we are very much reading the words of Peter as a man, as an apostle who's writing to the church. And at the very ta- same time, we're reading the words of God that he wanted recorded for us for our encouragement. So there is a humanity and a divinity to Scripture. So let's look at the humanity part of this just briefly. Paul says that he's writing this through Silvanus. Through Silvanus. Who is Silvanus? And what does he mean by writing through him? Well, there's a few different options. When he says that he wrote this letter through Silvanus, it could be mean that he wrote it through Silvanus. In other words, that Silvanus was acting uh, as an amanuensis. Okay, I'm going to pronounce that correctly. An amnuensis, and what that is, is when somebody writes a letter through another individual. So that would be in the form of dictation. So in other words, Paul could be speaking the words, and then Silvanus would be writing those words down for the Apostle Paul. So it's actually written technically by one writer, though it's coming from another writer. And so that's one way to take it. And in fact, if any of you have a new American or a new international version of Scripture, that's precisely how they translate it. It could also mean that Sylvanus is he who delivered the letter from Peter. In other words, sometimes this same kind of language is spoken of to say that it, it is, I've written to you through Sylvanus, i.e. he is the one who carried the letter from me to you. Through, so through his work of bearing the letter, he's the one, it could be said, it was written, I've written to you through him. Both of those were common at the time of the New Testament, and both of them were a part of New Testament scripture. So in Romans 16, let me again just give a couple of examples. In Romans 16, uh, Paul says this in verse 22, or it says this in verse 22. Who wrote the letter of Romans? Well, we say Paul wrote the letter of Romans. The letter begins that way, that Paul wrote the letter of Romans. And yet, at verse 22 of Romans 16, we read these words. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, who wrote this? Tertius, or did Paul write the letter? And the answer is it came from Paul. And in this case, Tertius was writing as his amnuensis. In other words, he was the vehicle to whom the words were actually written, although they came from Paul. These are, in fact, Paul's words. We see the same thing in many other places throughout the New Testament. And in matter of fact, and sometimes because this was so common, Paul had to emphasize the fact that when 
from certain letters that he was, in fact, the one writing and not someone else. So in Galatians 6.11, he says these. You might read this as you're going on and say, what in the world? Why is he, why is he saying this? But he says in chapter 6, verse 11 of Galatians, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Why would he say that? He's saying that because Paul, particularly in the letter of Galatians, uh, is wanting them to know that anybody else who writes a letter that tells you something differently than what I'm writing is, in fact, uh, not a true apostle. I want you to have something whereby you can recognize my own writing. And this became particularly uh, important as the New Testament went on because there were a lot of letters floating around among the early church who claimed to be from apostle, who claimed to be from a certain person, and in fact they weren't. They were false letters. And we see an example of that in 2 Thessalonians. Paul tells them, and you can just listen to some of these, you're jumping around. He says, I'm writing to you, that you would not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect to say that the day of the Lord has come. So somebody had written a letter, essentially wrote this letter in Paul's name. Had, it had reached this church, this, this young church in Thessalonica, and it had disturbed them and they became confused. And so Paul was writing to say, look, you received a letter and it claimed to be from me and it wasn't from me. And so he says at the end of it, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way that I write. He says the same thing in other places as well. The point is, is he wanted to give a mark that was an authentically, which was an authentic mark of the Apostle Paul so that no one could forge his name, no one could bring false doctrine, no one could write something um, as true as apostolic doctrine that was not, in fact, from his pen. And so Sylvanus, in this case, isn't acting as that amnuensis, but in fact that was a common, that was, he could be, it's what his possible in this case, uh, that was a common way to write scripture. But most likely here Paul means that he's writing through Sylvanus in this sense, that Sylvanus is the one who carried the letter to the church. He's the one who carried the letter to the church. But in either case, the point is, is that Sylvanus, in this instance, is identified as the mediator of this letter from Peter to the church. Now, who is Sylvanus? Who is this person? And here is another marvelous part of the wisdom of God and how he provides encouragement to the church. Who is Sylvanus? Sylvanus was a close ministry partner with Paul and Timothy. As a matter of fact, in first or Second Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians, he's mentioned at the beginning of the letter. Let me just give you one example. In Second Corinthians one nine, he says this. Or in Second Corinthians, uh, maybe that's First Corinthians one nine, he says this. He's writing to them, uh, these believers. Well, let me take you to First Thessalonians. I think that would be a clearer example. In First Thessalonians, wrote down the wrong reference. He says here, he says, Paul and Sylvanius and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. He says in the Second Thessalonians, the same thing, Paul and Sylvanius and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Sylvanius was a close 
ministry partner with Paul who did ministry with him and was helpful in establishing some of these churches and nourishing these churches and was a part of his writing to them. But Sylvanius is mentioned by that name at the, in the introduction of several epistles, but he's also mentioned in the book of Acts. And it's almost certain that Sylvanius is, can you guess? Silas, the missionary partner of Paul in the book of Acts. We see Silas, who is Sylvanius, another way to say his name, whom we see traveling with the Apostle Paul in Acts. And if this is the case, and it most certainly is, we're first introduced to him in the books of, book of Acts, chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council. And he comes onto the scene primarily as one who was to take this decision of the church, so there was an issue in the church related to the gospel, uh, Jews who were saying you need to be circumcised to be saved. It was disturbing some Gentile churches. They came together to discuss this issue. A decision was made under the headship, actually, of James. They wrote a letter as a council, and then this letter needed to be delivered out to these Gentile churches. And in doing that, Silas, or Silvanus, was one of the men who was called and entrusted with this responsibility to take these letter, to take this letter uh, to, the, a copy of this letter to uh, the various churches. And so he says in Acts 15, 22, it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and the whole church to choose men from, uh, and from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, read Silvanus, leading men among the brethren. And so he's entrusted with this ministry of taking, this very delicate ministry, and of taking this word, this decision, out to these churches. In verse 32, it says, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthening the brothers with a lengthy message. They were prophets, they were leading men, they were those with great responsibility, and they were those who were recognized, even as Paul calls them, calls them as a faithful brethren among the church. He was a trusted leader. He was a trusted leader, a faithful brother. And it's more than that, though. Even though Paul identifies him as one to say, you can trust him, you can trust his ministry to you, he is, in fact, in bringing this letter a representation of my own ministry to you, there's even more to it than that. As we continue to read about Silas and his involvement in the missionary journeys of Paul, you come to Acts chapter 16, and in Acts chapter 16, we have what is a familiar story to many, that they went and were taking the gospel to the region of Macedonia, and this is actually where he met uh, Timothy, and, or, and set him aside in, uh, to be uh, his partner in ministry, often called him a son in the faith, which means probably in this case, Timothy had come to faith under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. But then in Acts chapter 16, we come into verse 16. It says in their missionary journey, as it happened, as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her at that very moment. And when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul 
and Silas, or Silvanus, and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs of which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. After this, the crowd rose up against them. The chief magistrate tore their robes off of them and proceeding to order them to be beaten with rods. And in fact, they were beaten. And when they had been struck with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. He called for the lights. They rushed in, so overwhelmed with this circumstance that when he brought them out, the jailer yelled, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Why is that important? They knew this Silas. They knew this Silvanus was one who traveled with Paul, who was a faithful brethren, who was a leader in the church, who was displayed a ministry of the Spirit, able to encourage and exhort the church, who had been given great ministry responsibility. But here's the kicker, and what's important in this case, he was also one who knew what it meant to suffer. He knew what it was meant to suffer. That's what these believers are going through. Sylvanus would have been the perfect human instrument to bring this message of endurance because Sylvanus could say, not only am I bringing you this letter, I'm bringing it as one who can minister to you having endured the same kind of suffering. I know what it's like to be beaten. I know what it's like to have crowds rise up against you. I know what it's like to be thrown in prison and to be put in the stocks. And I know what it's like to be in that circumstance and to persevere, to persevere in faith. And so even here in this very human element of this closing letter, we see the ministry of God and how he encourages. He doesn't doesn't remain distant from what they're going through, but he sends one who says, yes, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what you're going through. And so as I bring you this letter, I can, by one who's experienced it, encourage you in it, encourage you in these truths, encourage you to stand strong. This is actually precisely what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Verse 9, resist him, who? The devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We noted what is the part of this encouragement. One, it is to say, be encouraged by the fact that you're not alone in your suffering, but others have suffered and left you an example to follow, Christ being the foremost. But also others who follow Christ. It's also a reminder to say that as you suffer, you, by suffering well, are setting an example for other believers to follow. And both of those are encaptured here in the ministry of Sylvanus or Silas to these believers. I think the point of bringing some of that out is that this is, this is a letter of men to men. This is a, a letter of, with all of the human 
experiences and all of the human personality and all of the human shaping by the providence of God to be not only for Peter, to the church, his brethren were never known to heaven, but to the church throughout all of the ages. The ministry of Silvanus, the purpose of Silvanus, the, the, the personal nature of it wasn't just for their benefit, it was for us as well, so that we could look at it and find encouragement. And yet, though very human, it is divine. So just consider the divine part. Peter himself knows that as he's writing this letter, in all likelihood he understands, and I'll point out why in a minute, that he's writing this letter as a part of the New Covenant Scriptures to the church. Now, he knows that that's happening. Remember, when you had the Old Covenant and under the Mosaic Law particularly, which is, was the governing reality of the religious life of the nation and identity in the Old Covenant, now it all has been done away with, and you have this New Covenant church, this new reality of the risen Christ. And they needed the Scriptures as well. Even as the Old Covenant Israel needed a word from God that was authoritative, that was clear, that was instructive. Now the church needed that letter. And so that same kind of word. And so as we read the New Testament, the New Testament scriptures were being written. They didn't open it up and have a concordance and say, here's the table of contents, where do I find it? It was being written in real time. And so it was utterly important that they knew which kind of letter that we're receiving is in fact a word from God and which kind of letter we are receiving is in fact not a word from God. And you had competing letters, as we already noticed, in Thessalonians that were vying for that position. Some were claiming to be from God and some were and some weren't. And so we needed to know which ones are which. And so Peter recognizes that we could that this is identifiable, that we can have confidence. He says in chapter 3 of Second Peter, verse, well, beginning in verse 15, he says, We regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is our beloved brother, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, yeah. which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do with the rest of what? Scripture as they do with the rest of Scripture. That is a term used here that is categorically referring to that which is a divine word from God. Peter is writing, acknowledging that Paul's ministry and Paul's letter to the churches, Paul's letters that were circulating around, Paul's letters that were revealing the gospel of Christ that was revealed to him by the risen Christ were, in fact, Scripture. They were, in fact, Scripture and should be received as such. They are, in fact, God's word to the church. So he understood that this was happening. He understood that Paul was a part of it, but he understood he was a part of it, too. In his second letter, Peter, and this is going to be so important to understand, Peter's writing to this group of believers, again, saying that he's writing to remind you of these things. And essentially, he's saying, I'm writing to remind you of these things because eventually I'm going to die. 
And with me, my apostolic ministry is going to go off of the scene. And so you need an authoritative word as one from an apostle to carry you through once I'm gone. And guess what? You're going to be gone. The church after you, guess what? They're going to be gone in the church after them. Guess what? They're going to be gone in the church after them. So when he writes this, he writes this with a full understanding of his authoritative apostolic ministry. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. How? Because I'm writing them to you. Read the letter. That's how. But then he says something marvelous in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales, which when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What event is he talking about? Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were taken up to see Christ transformed before their eyes. They, they saw a, a vision, or not a vision, but they saw his glory displayed that was reflective of his true glory and the glory that will be displayed upon his return. And he says, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard it. We are, uh, we are trustworthy. We are that. In fact, even in Holy Scripture itself, in the gospel accounts, we are there as those who saw and witnessed and heard this and were given this sight of the glory of Christ. He says, we've heard this, but then he says this in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What is he speaking of here? He's saying, look, we had this incredible experience, experience that was unrepeatable, an experience that was given to only a few, an experience that was authenticated, validated, even by the Lord himself, by scripture itself. And yet, I'm giving to you something of even greater significance than that. Where is he giving you in? Scripture. The word. A prophetic word made more sure. Made more sure. In other words, and listen to this, please. Understand this, and I know many of you do, but I, I want you to. The written word always trumps personal experience. That's the issue. The written word always trumps personal experience. Even authentic apostolic experience of the glory. Paul's saying. Now that is a huge statement. Paul's saying, look, I, or Peter, I had this experience, but the word that I'm writing to you as the church and reminding you of that is going to be recorded for you is of far more significance than anything I experienced on the mountain. It is the prophetic word made more sure. And for them particularly, this is important. So when somebody comes to you with a particular dream, a particular word from God, a particular kind of prophecy, a particular anything that does not accord with the written word, it's false. Don't listen to them. And everything that God wants and has given to you for your edification and for your strength 
and for your knowledge of Christ and for your ability to endure well is already recorded for you in the word. So you don't need so much extra experience. Basically, he's saying what you need and what I'm giving to you is contained here in this letter that I'm writing to you as an apostle, as my ministry to the church. It's an incredible, incredible statement and one that many in the church would do well to understand. He's making a direct statement regarding the origin of Scripture. So again, I'm just going to repeat this one more time. We not understand and bring our experiences into submission to Scripture, not the other way around. Not the other way around. And so he's making a direct statement, as I said, of the origin of Scripture. Doesn't it originate in his thought, his reasoning, his explanation? And that's the point he's going to make next. He says, verse 20, but know this first of all, in other words, of, of the most importance, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And he emphasized the fact that Scripture is more sure, more authoritative, more sufficient, more useful, because it is not ultimately sourced in human perception of reality or in the human will, but in the supernatural operation of the Spirit who superintended the writers of Scripture in such a way that as they wrote, he was moving them along to ensure that their very words were the words of God. That's his point. How does it happen? He basically gives here an insight into the process of inspiration. Into the process of inspiration. It's really quite beautiful. He says, but men moved along or moved by the Holy Spirit. Not to be deformed here. Most of us aren't too interested in that in, in general, but, but he uses, this is important, a, a form here that's passive. And, you know, if you have an active, you have the subject acting on something. I don't know if I'm active here. Uh, if you have passive, you have the subject being acted upon. And in this case, men were moved along. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They were being acted upon by the Holy Spirit, carried along to a destination. And a beautiful illustration of that is found in Acts 27, the same term in the same uh, passive form of the term is used to speak of a boat who was driven along by the wind. It was carried. So you see this boat, the sails are up, the wind catches it and carries it along to its destination. And that's the idea that he uses here in relation to Scripture. So in relation to inspiration, it means this, that while the authors themselves were active in the sense that their minds were thinking, they didn't go into some kind of spiritual trance, you know, where they had their fingers, you know, put together or whatever. And somehow these, this word came out, and, and then they woke up. Now, they were writing with fully engaged in their minds and their heart, heart, thoughts and their hearts and their emotions and their will and their experience. And yet, in some gloriously supernatural, sovereign way, they were, as they were fully as individuals writing that word, being moved along by God the Holy Spirit in such a way that he was taking them to this desired designation so that as they wrote, the words they wrote were the actual words intended by God himself. Isn't that marvelous? That's scripture. That's scripture. That's why, as we made it earlier, it can say Moses said, scripture said, God said, the spirit said, Paul said, Peter said, they said, the spirit said, God said. It's all the same. 
all the same. But what is significant is to realize what is the ultimate source. And that's what he's emphasizing here. The ultimate source, though men were used, was not men. It was the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God. Again, I'll just give you a couple examples. So David could say in 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. Who's speaking? David. But who's really speaking? The Spirit of the Lord. Even Christ, in Matthew twenty two forty three, in making a point to prove his deed, he says to the Pharisees, Then how does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord. In other words, David was saying that. What was the source of David saying that was the Holy Spirit? Where is it recorded? In Scripture. As the Word of God. So I want to just close this. I want to... Uh, with these reminders, and we'll pick it up and we'll finish the whole thing next, uh, next week. But it's this, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, and when we come to these passages that we may think, why in the world did God include it there? Well, hopefully that will be filled out even more uh, next week. But why is it there? What are we saying when we say that Scripture is both human and Scripture is divine? What are we saying when we say that Scripture is the Word of God and it is the Word of man? Let me give you three main points about inspiration. Three main points of what's meant. First of all, when we say that Scripture is inspired, what is being said is this, that Scripture originates from God. That God is the ultimate source. God is the one from whom Scripture flows, not men. It's a product of God's doing and God's work, not the product of men. That is why Scripture can have about 40 different authors be written. You know these statistics written over about 1,400 years from entirely different cultural contexts, from entirely different situations in life, from being in persecution to being free, times of abundance, and so on. It can be written by those who had various levels of educational experience, various levels of position and authority from a lowly shepherd to a king and a leader of a nation. And yet, when Scripture speaks, it speaks with what? One voice. One voice. There's one voice. You have all of the characteristics of human personality, and yet it speaks with one voice, and ultimately that voice is the Holy Spirit. It is the voice of God. And that is why when we come to Scripture, we hold certain truths to be not only self-evident as we study, but also crucial in order to understand. And that is that Scripture won't contradict Scripture. Scripture won't contradict Scripture. That one part of Scripture will support another part of Scripture, and every part will work together in a harmonious whole to reveal the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is because while written by many different authors, it is the one word of God. And this is, just as a footnote, and I know many of you feel the same way too, it absolutely makes your head want to spin when Scripture is compared to some other religious document. There's no religious document on the face of the planet that even comes close to the nature of Scripture. Not even close. Why can we flip around as if it was the most normal thing in the world to Genesis to learn and find about points that were being written about in the prophets that were being written about and affirmed in Galatians. Do you realize how many millennia have passed? How different those are? And yet we flip back and forth with cross-references like it's no big deal. But grasp what you're doing. 
you're reading about a man with a long beard, or so the movie said, who went up to a mountain with smoke and fire, receiving a word from God. That's not in our context. That would be really weird to see that right now. It was pretty strange for them as well. Moses, who was Moses? And yet we read him as if he was written last week, and what he said makes, of course it makes perfect sense to what Paul was saying. Of course it makes perfect sense with Isaiah. Of course it makes perfect sense with the other writers of Scripture. Why? Because it is the one voice of God. That is the inspiration of Scripture. And so I would just encourage you to marvel at that. Think about the fact of the difference of the writers and the people that we have that comprise this one book, Scripture. So when we say Scripture originates with God, we're saying, or is inspired, we're saying it originates with God. Secondly, and I'll say these quickly, we're referring to this, and this is important. When we say, speak of inspiration, we're referring to the document of Scripture, not the writers of Scripture. Sometimes we'll say Paul was inspired. You'll hear people say that. Peter was inspired. Mark was inspired. So on and so forth. What's being said precisely is this. Not that Paul went around and everything he said was to be written down on little post-it notes and kept forever because that was the word of God. No, Paul was an apostle. He was trustworthy. Paul, he was certainly led by the Spirit. But not everything that Paul said was Scripture, and not everything that Paul wrote was Scripture. Not everything was of value to be recorded for the church through all ages with the authority and the sufficiency and the clarity of God and these other attributes of Scripture. As a matter of fact, Paul acknowledges himself, even in his letter to the Corinthians, that there is another letter that was not kept. Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. That is a letter that is lost for us. We do not have that letter. Why? That letter was not Scripture. It was not Scripture. So when we refer to inspiration, we're referring to the text of Scripture itself. What was inspired? Paul? Well, he was a part of that process. Peter was a part of that process. What's inspired? First Peter is inspired. The book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, what's inspired? The letters of Paul are inspired and, and uh, read. So we're saying that it originates from God. It speaks with one voice, the voice of God, through the human instruments, while not in any way putting aside their own individual, individuality. Inspiration refers to the document of Scripture and not the writers. And as has already been covered, inspiration acknowledges and includes the reality that God used man to write the actual word and so there is in a nutshell the doctrine of inspiration that is here so beautifully and wonderfully shown in the letter of Peter in this very simple remark and of course we'll draw more out of this uh, next week But this is the Bible. This is the word. Now think of how personally received this letter would have been by those who heard it. This is the apostle writing to us. This is Peter writing to us. How personal that he's doing this. How personal that Sylvanus is coming and bringing unto us this word. A fellow brother who can encourage us in the very same things that we're enduring. And guess what? Part of the genius and the wonder and the marvel and the beauty of scripture is that we receive it in the same way. We don't know Peter personally. We've never met him. We will in heaven. We don't know Sylvanus. But through the way that God has given us this book, 
we benefit from that same, that same encouragement because we can look at Silas and go, hey, these aren't just words written in theory. These are words written by someone who experienced it. It's written to us in a way that speaks to our hearts and our experience so that we can, the church through all ages, though in different cultures and times, experience the same encouragement and the comfort that was meant by God. And so we should marvel at Scripture. And so when you come to Scripture, I just pray that part of that is an encouragement to remember the nature of Scripture. This is God's Word to you. Yes, it is through men. It's very human. And we're, we're supported and encouraged by that. And yet it is the divine Word of God through His sovereign and providential purposes has given to us the Word that we stand. The Word that sanctifies, the saving Word, the sanctifying Word, the encouraging Word, and the comforting Word. Now, we'll just wrap at that next week and then finish and look at his portrayal of the lived-out doctrine of salvation and of Christmas. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll meet next week. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is your word that gives our souls such peace. It is your word that gives us wisdom where we would have none. It is your word that gives us instruction and light where we would otherwise be in darkness. It is your word that ministers to us, not only in precept, but also in example. It is your word that gives us not only the command, but that command lived out in the lives of your people in a variety of circumstances. Help us to be students of your word. We would not miss out on everything that you have provided for us there in this beautiful garden. Help us to be hunger, to hunger more like even Peter and said, like newborn babes, that we might delight in everything that was revealed there in relation to our salvation and how we might grow in it. Help us to love your word. Stir us up and help us to put away those things in our lives that are distractions in our coming to your word and mold us and shape us by that word into the image of our beloved Savior. It's in his name we pray.